This is your host, McKenna Miller, and this is Today on the Gram. Today I have someone pretty special with me. Um, this is Sarah Heflin. She was my intern back when I was in high school in youth group, so that's pretty fun. Um, and then last year we were actually in covenant group together, which was really, really special for me. Um, and that's where I actually did, you know, this in-depth study on the Enneagram, and that's where, you know, again, not experts, but that's where we learned all of the things that we know about it. Um, so Sarah, say hi. Um, you, sorry, it didn't pick you up. I got nothing. Mm -mm, I can't hear you. Nothing. Oh, now it is. There you go. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'll say hello again. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, so Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am a teacher uh, here in Arlington, where my husband is a youth. Wait, I'm going to start over. Sorry. It's, it's okay. Okay, I'll get used to it. I need to not watch myself because that's where I'm throwing myself off. Um, okay, so my name is Sarah Heflin and my husband and I live in Arlington um, where my, he is a youth minister at North Davis Church of Christ. So one of the best parts of our life is that I get to do youth ministry with him, you know, on a regular basis, which is really awesome. When I'm not doing youth ministry with him, I'm a teacher at Grace Prep Academy. I teach middle school, seventh and eighth grade love middle school. They're awesome. So much fun. And then this year we had a baby one week into quarantine. So he is seven months old, about to be seven months old now. His name is Deacon and he's awesome. And he is thankfully peacefully asleep right now. So, um, so that's me and we have a dog justice. So that's us. I love that. Um, so you're a teacher. That's so great. What subject do you teach? I teach five English classes, and actually this year I'm teaching a speech and debate class, which has been really fun. Wow. So that must be really interesting, like, during the election. Yes. Y'all yes. bring that up in speech and debate every day? All or the time. And yeah, the kids largely are the ones bringing it up. So today we talked about confirmation bias and how that influences our just conversation. So I'm not sure they totally believed me. So we'll yeah. see. Well, I voted today, so there's my contribution. Congrats, congrats. <laughs> Thanks. It was stressful, but I got through it. And also, okay, um, if you're, oh no, I'm going to butcher it because I don't remember where I voted. It was at a park. I'll have to look it up later. But for anyone wanting to not wait in any line, I went at like uh, 9, 9.30 a.m. and okay. literally walked right in no line at all and I was like wow this was crazy and there's so many booths there so you know even if there were a lot of people I think it would have gone just as quick yeah. so that and was it was outside mine wasn't mine was in oh. a, like a gym oh okay I thought you said a park okay well it was right next to this big relatively park in Dallas okay and I guess it was some kind of like convention center or like a more like a YMCA and so you like walk in and there's a you just walk right in and there's the gym and you vote in there and super quick, super easy. So yeah, I'm going tomorrow. I think I may take Deacon with me. So it'll be his first voting experience. Oh, wow. 
but I'm hoping same thing, hoping we can just go in and out. Yeah. Take too long. I do wish I would have uh, waited in a little bit of a longer line just to do it at the American Airlines Center, though, just because, yeah. like, you get that cool Mavericks button that says, I voted. I'm like, wow, yeah. that thing looks cool. Also, someone and you said can't that, go back now. I know, right? But then someone said the first day that they did early voting at the AAC Center, um, not the AAC Center, at the, at the AAC, um, they, like, Mark Cuban was there, and he was, what? like, saying hi to people, and I was like, What? <laughs> I'm like, wait, Dirk's going to show up next. <laughs> that would be awesome. I know. Like, wait every day. And be like, I already voted. I just want to like. Be here. <laughs> I'm just waiting for Dirk. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a stalker, but I am. So man, um, that'd be so cool. Have I ever told you about the time when I met Dirk? I think so. I think we talked about it. Yeah, it was for those of you that don't know, it was probably the greatest day of my entire life. Um, I was in college and me and my best friend, Mallory, who was on the podcast last week, uh, we went to a Mavs game in Memphis, because Memphis is only like two hours from Cersei, which That's is where right, I remember cool. it. Yeah, yeah. And so we went to a Grizz-Mavs game, and uh, after the game was over, I'm pretty sure the Mavs won, so like, go Mavs. Um, and I'm pretty sure after the game was over, we saw that um, there were these people that were like walking down to like a it, it seemed very secluded because like there were people that were like ushering them in and I was like what is that and I was looking at it and I thought oh my word that's like a meet and greet and I was that's awesome I was blown away and I was thinking you know Chandler Parsons had just been traded from the Mavs to the Grizz and I was like I could see Chandler Parsons that would be amazing <laughs> and so me and Valerie like waited till everyone had kind of gone through and we snuck in and we sat at the back and we're just sitting there and like, there's some players, I don't know them very well, no Chandler Parsons. I'm like, oh, well, this is, you know, it was fun. Like we're at the game anyway. Um, and then Mallory looks at me and she like touches me on the arm. She like grabs my <laughs> arm and she's like, Jenna. And I look over and I was like, oh my, oh, it's Dirk, it's Dirk, <laughs> it's Dirk. And I start freaking out. And I run down the stairs like as fast as I can and this huge crowd starts like you know forming because they want to meet Dirk right and his agent he so there was these guys in front of us that were like speaking German so I think he was staying for some of his friends they came to the game and so he's talking with them in German I'm like wow like this this is it this is the moment I'm gonna meet him and <laughs> granted like he joined the league you know pretty much when I like knew what basketball was like when yeah. I was like that young as a kid he was starting to become a thing and my dad became obsessed with him and then like all growing up like 41 was my number on everything I you know like when you're in elementary school and you write those papers about like your hero and like most yeah. people, like, their parents no mine was Dirk and wow I was obsessed with him so you're like a super fan oh I I really was I loved him still do still love him um and uh <laughs> so we get down there and everybody's kind of like had their turn and everybody's talked to him and it's about to be my turn and his agent is like yelling at him he's like come on Dirk we have to go they're they're <laughs> gonna leave without you you gotta get on the bus and I was like no and so it gets to me and I'm the last person and he goes I'm sorry I have to go and I was like it's okay and he shakes my hand and uh he goes what's your name and I was like McKenna he's like it's so nice to meet you. I don't have time to like take pictures or, um, you know, 
sign autographs or anything like that. I was like, it's okay. It was just nice enough to meet you. Oh. Like, it was nice to meet you too. And I literally just turned around and started sobbing, like crying <laughs> so hard because I just, I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. And so I called you had no mom. preparation. Like you, like oh. it wasn't the plan. Yeah, none at all. So I called my mom and um, I was like, mom. And she knew I was driving to Memphis that night. So she thought, Oh no, she got in a wreck. Yes, like, I remember oh, you telling that part. Oh my, yeah. I, I read this. Can I talk to dad? And she was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> okay, okay. And so she put my dad on the phone. I was like, Dad, I met Derek. And he's like, What? And I was like, I met Derek. And he said, Bust out laughing. And my mom got so mad at me. Oh she, no. Scared me half to death. And I was like, I'm sorry, but it was like the greatest day ever. Man. So, you should have like had your little fifth grade paper and been like, "You're my hero." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could probably email it in my pocket. I mean, I usually keep it on me, but for some reason, yeah, you know, just I that one time. Yeah, that one right. time. <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing. That's a good memory. Well, okay, let's transition a little bit into talking about the enneagram. So, um, Sarah, what do you identify as on the enneagram? I am definitely a one. A one. I yeah, love pretty, it. And the one is pretty strong. The what? The perfectionist? I've heard it a couple things. Perfectionist is the probably the one I identify with the most. Okay. Um, I've seen activist elsewhere too. Oh, okay. Um, because I think that it takes the kind of like the social justice element and mm-hmm. kind of turns it into the activist. But perfectionist is probably what I <laughs> in myself the most for yeah. better words. I love that. I'm gonna read the um the descriptions of the different states that a one can be in. So healthy, average, and unhealthy. And then uh, we can talk about a little bit. So healthy ones are committed to a life of service and integrity. They are balanced and responsible and are able to forgive themselves and others for being imperfect. They are principled but patient with the processes that slowly but surely make the world a better place. Average ones have judging and comparing minds that naturally spot errors and imperfections. They struggle to accept that imperfection is inevitable while fearing the tyranny of the critical voice in their head. Unhealthy ones fixate on small imperfections. These ones are obsessed with micromanaging what they can, asserting control over something is some over something or someone is their only relief. All right, so hearing those three little descriptions of <clears throat> healthy, unhealthy, and average ones, where do you think you fall into that? today like in this moment in time right now in this moment today i'm feeling pretty healthy i'm doing good Good. Um, recently we've been really busy well really i mean having had a baby has really brought out the unhealthy side i think too um, because the you know the sleep deprivation and the you know stress and anxiety that comes with that on top of being in a pandemic so i've seen a lot of the unhealthy in myself you know during the course of the pandemic which i think is probably true for a lot of people um you know, just all of the, the pressure of 2020. So, um, and then I want to like be in the, you know, the really healthy, like going, going towards that. Um, but probably been more unhealthy recently, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it's, it is, it's a daily process and it's a daily discovery of trying to recognize when you are being unhealthy and, and it's good that you can notice when you're being healthy like today. And so I love that answer. Yeah. 
Well, and what I've realized too is throughout my whole life, the unhealthy parts of being one have been really like they've been positively re reinforced for me in my from my perspective. Like, um, the the perfectionist part of me that's like, oh, I have to do everything perfectly right in order to be valuable, in order to like you know make everything good. That has quote unquote worked well. Like I've been successful, and I attributed that success to what I thought was a driving force. And it was, it was that unhealthy voice saying, you need to be better. You need to be perfect and everything. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't success. It was really, you know, a place of unhealth, but you know, for such a long time, I thought, Oh, like I'm, I'm good at these things because I work so hard and I never cut myself any slack. And that's just not, not a good place to be in. So. Mm -hmm. so. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, how did you initially come across the Enneagram? slash like, you know, how did you hear about it? And what process did you take to discover the number that you identify with? So when my husband, husband's name is Chris, when he was interviewing here at North Davis, we came down for a weekend to hang out with the staff and meet with the elders as part of the interview process, as I'm sure you're familiar with. And at the minister at the uh, main pastor's house, Jeff Hubbard, uh, all of the ministers were like, what's your number? And I was like, what, like 281? Like what? <laughs> um, it's a Houston number. And, uh, digits. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is this thing you're talking about? And they were like, oh my gosh, like you have to know about because they are all super into it and they are really well educated. Many, several of them have become trained by um, people like Risa Higgins and things like that in spiritual disciplines and using the Neogram for uh, ministry and everything. And so they are all really, really knowledgeable and I was kind of like, okay, like whatever. And then I went, we went to Disney in California for not, we didn't go to Disney. We went to California for the Pepperdine lectureships in May. And again, we talked a lot about it and just, you know, having those conversations when you're on a plane and traveling with people for consecutive days was really interesting. Um, so by the time I got to Covenant Group, I knew that was basically my exposure was just having heard from them about it. And we talked a lot about it in Covenant Group. And I really liked that we broke it down into, um, you know, kind of different triads and everything and discussed. <laughs> excuse me and then my mother-in-law actually was reading the road back to you so I borrowed it from her and um like I still I took pictures of each of the like at the beginning of each chapter it's like what's it like to be a one what's it like to be yes. so I still have those pictures so when I knew we were going to be having this conversation tonight at the dinner table tonight I pulled them out and I was talking to my sister about it um and I was like, hey, like, what, you know, what do you think you are and everything? <laughs> I'm kind of flashing back to that. So that's been my exposure. I'm definitely not an expert, but as I was reading, you know, the one chapter in Road Back to You, I was like, oh, they wrote this about me. Like, this <laughs> is specifically for me. Yeah. Um, I also get to participate in spiritual direction um, through 1128 Ministries with our church as well. Um, and we often talk about it in that context as well. So so I'm definitely one. And then the, my husband is um, an eight, absolutely. And so, so as I was reading his chapter, I was like, okay, they wrote this one about him. Like this yep. is him, him, him and everything. And so uh, that's, that's the extent of my knowledge. So I'm definitely not an expert. I struggle to honestly, just to keep track of like the, the feelings and the doing and all that. Stuff. I just read the things and I'm like, yeah, like that's, like, that's how I see the world. Um, what I thought was really interesting about the learning process was really until I started reading about the and, and I do you pronounce it Enneagram or Enneagram? Enneagram. Enneagram. Okay. So I've heard it both ways. I'm pretty sure you're saying it right. But the thing that helped me the most about it was that until I started getting into it, and this sounds so naive, but until I started getting into it, um, I just thought everybody was just like me and everybody saw the world the way I do. Yeah. That other people didn't, you know, have the same drives and motivating factors and experiences that I did, like literally 
never crossed my mind, which meant when people were behaving in their number, I was like, what's wrong with you? Why do you not, you know, see it this way? Yeah. So realizing that there were all these different ways of understanding yourself um, helped me to understand others and really gave me a lot more uh, grace and compassion for other people because I was like, oh, like this is something that's intrinsically unique to your experience and is really different from mine. So that's been, I think, really helpful and really valuable. Yeah, hundred um, percent. It's funny that you brought up the uh, the part of the book where it does the list. So the other day, me and some of my friends, we were at La La Land, which is my favorite coffee shop. If you haven't been there, you have to go. They actually um, hire people that are like aging out of the foster system. It's awesome. so cool. I also, it's great food, great coffee. Actually, I don't yes. drink coffee, but they have great tea. I will tell you yeah. that. Um, they have this butterfly tea. Sorry, I'm getting very off topic, but it's so good. <laughs> anyway, so we were there and I was, you know, going over uh, chapter nine because I was about to have my recording with Mallory. And I had a friend and he was like, what is this book you're reading? And I was like, oh, let me tell you about it. I'm so nerding out on it right now. Um, and so we started basically just reading all of those little descriptions and because each of us at the table all of us knew our number except for one of us and so we would read the list and we would just like put a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a thumb sideways like if it you know went along with how we feel and so when they did the threes I think I put my thumb down for like two of them and it was one of them was like I could sell a Mac to Bill Gates or something like that. And I was like, yeah, that ain't me because I am not mm-hmm. a salesperson. Um, and I know that has to do with like success, but like in that part of it, I was like, I'm successful, but not in the business world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like literally almost everything else. I was like, yep, that's me. You're speaking directly to me. That's cool. This is yes. made for me. Um, also, you did mention 1128. So shout out to them. Um, 1128 Ministries, it's an incredible ministry. It's where me and Sarah do our covenant groups. And so if you're ever feeling like I need a group to donate to, that is an incredible one because it's for ministers um, to help us out with spiritual direction, with, you know, helping us to not have burnout and just all these different things. It's, it's a great ministry. So what are times in your life um, that you've noticed yourself being unhealthy in your type? Yeah. So, um, this has been a really, like, I'm, I'm going to think about this really slowly because this has been a really reflective year for me. Um, again, just in becoming a mom has like kind of opened my eyes to a whole side of my heart and my spirit that has probably always been there, but I just, you know, didn't realize the way those parts of my personality have been in play my whole life, like even to like being a really young kid and everything. And, and so, um, the unhealthy stuff and repeat, can you re- do you mind reading it again? Like read the, the section for the unhealthy again. Oh, absolutely. Cause the other part of being mom is my memory is gone. Like it's <laughs> so poor now. So unhealthy ones fixate on small imperfections. These ones are obsessed with micromanaging what they can asserting control over something or someone is their only relief. Yeah. Yeah. So that has been again very very true this year having a baby because i really have felt like the pressure to try to control a lot of stuff about him um things like oh like i can control your naps or i can control like your your mood and things like that and 
you can't do that for anybody, let alone, you know, a baby who's like, I do my own thing, mom. Yeah. Um, and what I found was like, I would become more and more stressed when I couldn't control him and I couldn't, you know, make him sleep or, you know, make him, you know, eat when I wanted him to or whatever. Um, and that has been a journey of just realizing like, like I'm ne never at any time in his life will I be able to control him. So I need to just like mm -hmm. stop trying. So definitely have seen the micromanaging um, with him. And so that would be an area where I was unsuccessful in micromanaging. But I would say too, um, you know, so I'm a teacher, I love school, like thrive, like I could take tests and, you know, I'm doing grad school as well. And I'm just like, I could be in school forever. Um, but that was an area where, again, it's this false perception of control. I felt like I was in control because it was like, if I do A, B, and C, I'll get the good grades and I'll get the 4.0 and it will work out well. Mm -hmm. um, for probably, you know, two decades had this false, per almost had this false perception of control that I could, um, you know, do everything right. And, and again, was negative, was reinforced in the sense that like I was successful. I did well in school. I liked school, but it created in me the sense of like, oh, like I can control other things. Like I can control school. And that's, that's not true. Um, in marriage too. Um, that's something that we've been married five years now. And um, I think that was probably one of our very first areas where we had to work on was me feeling like, oh, I can be in control of not necessarily controlling my husband, but like I can control the situation, the scenario. Yeah. If I, you know, if I just put in all the right ingredients, like, you know, there won't be any conflict or, you know, everything will be great. And that's also not how marriage works because marriage comes with conflict and you can't control that out of it. So yeah lots of areas where I like to be in control and none of them are actually areas where I can be in control. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I guess I never really thought about it like that, but that would be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So control is something that you struggle with. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, but that would be a really big challenge. Okay. So on the other side though, can you recall a scenario in your life where being healthy in your number has been a benefit to you. Can you read the healthy again for me? <laughs> yes, again, I will Sorry. Read. No, no, that's okay. I should, have, I should have had the book in front of me, but... Uh, no, you're fine. Right now, so everything's packed up. <laughs> okay, healthy ones are committed to a life of service and integrity. They are balanced and responsible and able to forgive themselves and others for being imperfect. They are principled but patient with the processes that slowly but surely make the world a better place. So that's also something that I really identify with and, you know, without bragging too much can say that that's um, an area where I've always felt passionate about. Um, just this sense of like, like I want to make the world a better place in whatever way I can, almost like that's my purpose here. Like I can, you know, what can I do to make the world a better place? Uh, I, when I was in high school, um, this like this is so weird and I like totally forgot about this until recently but for several years in high school like my thing this sounds so weird you don't please don't make fun of me but like my hobby almost was like doing nonprofit work like um why would I make fun of you for that I don't that's know. it just sounds so cheesy no, I don't that's... know it sounds so cheesy to be like oh I like did fundraisers but like that was what what really excited me yeah. was I was at a Christian school and so for example, when I was a freshman in high school, a ministry that worked with human trafficking came and they talked about trafficking in Houston, especially as, you know, like a lot of big cities has a really bad human trafficking problem. And there was a lot of it in our area. And I was so upset that this was a thing that was happening in the world. And I was like, what can I do? And so um, as like a 14 year old, there's not a lot you can do, but um, we, so I got with my best friend, we had this like big fundraising pool party in our neighborhood where we 
you know, everybody came from school and we collected donations and things like that. Um, we threw a baby shower for one of the girls who had been rescued and was having a baby. Um, and we sold t-shirts, things like that. And like, that was just my hobby. Cause I was like, I have to fix this problem. Like it's happening right here in my community. I have to do something, um, about it. And so like that from a pretty young age, that was really important to me. And when I was in college, I was in a service club because that was what was really like, a, it was a, a, you know, a social club, which they're different at Christian schools than they are. I went to ACU, they're different at Christian schools than they are at um, public schools, but ours was specifically focused on service. And that was what attracted me was like, like, oh, I have free time. So I should spend it, you know, trying to, to help others. Um, just lots of different things like that. That's how I've always been motivated to spend my time. Don't make me wrong. I also enjoy Netflix binging. <laughs> so it's not like I'm, you know, always doing something, but I find a lot of excitement and passion in um, efforts of social justice. And, you know, how can I use my excess time and energy to serve others? Um, that has, having had a baby this year and working and everything, I, I don't have as much to do it, much time to do it recently. And so it's something that I've definitely missed, but being a part of youth ministry, I feel like I still get to contribute to at least making those kids' worlds a better place oh. time that I have with them. So I think that's the, the healthy part of the one that comes out when I can use it to serve others. The downside is like, I can get really discouraged by all the, you know, bad things that are in my community. And I'm like, why, like, why can't I fix all these things? Like, yeah. um, and I can, so that's, you know, when you have to walk back from the control part. Mm. Wow. I, I didn't know that about you. Like I knew you had a heart for service, but at 14 to just know that like, that's what you're created for, that that's what you're supposed to do with your entire life. That's amazing. Like truly, truly so amazing. So I'm just kind of like shocked and in awe right now. Like that's well, awesome. Thanks. And also like, we totally, this is an outlet where you have a hundred percent permission to brag on yourself. So okay. I, love, I love that you did just now. That's awesome. So how does your number help or provide challenges in your profession being a teacher? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this today. And again, you know, all of this is through the lens of, of quarantine and pandemic um, that just, you know, affects every part of life right now. A bunch of my kids just got quarantined, which is like a huge mm -hmm. thing for them. So they're, you know, joining us online or we record the lessons and they watch it at home. Because we're private school, we've been in person since August, but we've had, so at this point, like, probably three quarters of my kids have been quarantined at some point, not because they had positive, but because positive tests, but because they were exposed to somebody who did. Oh yeah. And that has made school really challenging and it just makes it more difficult to do the things that I would normally be doing. And all semester I felt like, man, like I am not like my students are not getting like the education I want them to have. They're not having the lessons that I want them to have. It's not having the same impact. Um, and on the one hand, it, being a one drives me to try to figure out how to do it better, um, more efficiently and more beneficially for them. But on the other hand, it also is so frustrating to me when I feel like I'm failing them because I'm like, oh, like I should be able to do this perfectly. I should be able to, um, you know, accomplish all these goals and, and master all these skills with them and do all the stuff that like um, they just maybe can't do. We can't do it at the same level. It's been both a good thing and a bad thing. Being a one drives me to work hard and um, try to excel. But then when I feel like I'm unable to excel or things are again outside of my control, it's really hard for me to have that grace for myself. Um, so like today specifically all day, I just had to be like, this just has to be good enough. Like I have to be okay with it not being as good as I want it to be, 
which my husband is also always trying to tell me is true. <laughs> and my staff is great. I'm so blessed to have this amazing administration who they are all about giving us grace and saying like, hey, like you, we know you're working hard and you're doing your best. Um, and I, so I hear those messages from other people, but then internally I still have that voice that's like, okay, but I know I can do better. Um, and so I just have to tell that voice like, nope, this is good enough. Like this has to be good enough. Yeah. So we're going to transition now into more of how the Enneagram ties into our spiritual life. I want to first ask about the deadly sins. So one's deadly sin is anger. And the book says, ones feel a compulsive need to perfect the world. Keenly aware that neither they nor anyone else can live up to their impossibly high standards, they experience anger in the form of smoldering resentment. Do you think that applies to you? And, you know, if so, like, how does that play out in your life and how do you deal with that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like, absolutely. It's not something that I realized I did until I started learning about the Enneagram and was like, oh, I actually do that. Um, so there's one part of the healthy section that you read that was like, they forgive others easily. And that's not something that applies to me. Like I really struggle to forgive both others and myself because like that language of the high standard, I'm just like, well, like, this is the standard we have to meet. Um, yeah. So for me, I often am really bad at realizing when I am angry and I think like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just tired. Or I'm hungry or like, I'm frustrated with this situation. I'm not angry with a person until I take the time to sit down and realize, oh no, like I'm specifically angry with a person um, because I also don't love conflict, which a lot of us, you know, do like conflict, but I would much rather just like sit in my own anger and just be angry and work through it on my own than bring that to the other person, which we know is not healthy. Um, tonight, our Bible study with the youth group, they were in our driveway tonight, was about conflict and the kids are talking about like how they handle conflict and the whole time I'm like, I don't like, no, I don't. I'm so bad. <laughs> Is better than I am. Um, my answer is right, right. Yes, like don't call on me. Um, actually, it was sweet side note. We had two of our seniors like led the Bible study and everything, so they did really good. We were really proud of them. Um, but I was like, don't call on me. I don't, I don't have anything to contribute to this conversation. So, um, yeah, so I can let that anger simmer for a long time. There have been situations where I have kept that anger and bitterness for years, wow. uh, and like I feel it physically, like when I. Well, that person in that situation just be like oh like I can feel that in my body like my body is tense and everything uh-huh. I'm really fortunate to have a husband who does not allow me to um hold on to feelings and just like bury them he makes me talk about them which is good yeah. um even if I don't want to so that's been in, like at first in our early on a marriage that was really hard because I'd be like no like I'll just sit here and just handle this I can handle this on my own and he was like nope like we we need to talk about this because he's an eight and he loves conflict so <laughs> Yeah, so that's, I definitely identify with anger. Um, my brother um, has some just mental health issues or challenges and things like that. And he really struggled with anger our whole life um, and was just like a really angry kid and, um, and still does struggle with that. And so when I would hear people saying, oh, well, once I have anger, I'd be like, well, no, 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 that's not me. Like, you know, that's, I've seen that and that's not me. Um, but I've realized like, no, like I do have anger. It just comes out in a more, um, almost like a sneaky way or so than than just like outbursts and things like that yeah would you say that you like hold grudges even like against yourself yeah oh yeah absolutely against myself like it's so hard for me to forgive myself when I mess up Mm -hmm. um because again I'm just like I know I can do better I know I can do better um and 
it's hard to explain it because like on paper I can be like, well, I'll just let that go. But I don't know why it's just like when I make a mistake and I know I make a mistake, it just comes back again and again. And I have to constantly be like, Oh, like I have to let that go. I have to let that go. Um, you know, to the point where if I'm not careful, like I'll punish myself for it and say like, well, I don't deserve, you know, this good thing or whatever, because I messed up so bad, which is not healthy at all. Um, and I'm really lucky to have people in my life who will call me out on that and be like, no, like you have to have grace for yourself. You have to forgive yourself. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because being in youth ministry, there's so many times where I'm like, I know exactly what I would say to a student who was expressing these, you know, feelings or anger or whatever. But then, you know, when you say it to yourself, you're like, oh, like I have a higher standard for myself. So, you know, yeah, those mistakes. Yeah, man, that's heavy. That's a lot to carry for a person. It can be, it can be. A lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, Well, on a more positive note, so with the Enneagram, and your personal type, you know, is there in your own spiritual development or, you know, your soul care time, how do you think your number comes into play with that? And what activities would you say that you gravitate towards? So like, for example, for me, um, I prefer being with people. So I prefer communal worship. um, And I prefer being creative, using art, um, you know, you talked about service. So like, is that probably where you gravitate towards as far as worshiping or do you find it in other places? Yeah, no, I think service is one of the main ways where I feel connected to God when I'm feel like I'm being the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, you know, I just, I see all my favorite parts of the Bible are Jesus serving people and taking care of the marginalized and the rejected. And so when I have the opportunity to do things like that, like that is so um, exhilarating to me and just so exciting um, because I'm like, okay, like, this is why, like, this is why God put me here to, to be a blessing to others and to make the world better again, like I said earlier. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like did all sorts of short-term mission trips and things like that. Um, today it looks more like just, you know, again, looking for those opportunities to serve marginalized. A lot of times it's with my students and, um, just kids who clearly just need, you know, an extra dose of love that day, um, whether at church or at, at school. Um, you mentioned like communal worship, being with people that, yeah, so that wouldn't be something that I would identify with. Like definitely not the art thing is not my <laughs> skill suit again, because being a perfectionist, anytime I try to do artwork, I'm just like, it's not perfect. Like I can't make it look good. So it's stressful. I was in this sweet group of um, this ministry program at our church before COVID where older moms are mentoring, they call them moms, older um, women in the church are mentoring younger moms, they call them sisters. And each month they would have like a craft and it was so sweet of them, but I would get so stressed because I'd be like, I cannot, you know, knit this thing that you want me to knit or whatever. <laughs> like, it's not going to turn out good. Um, so I really liked it when they were really simple, just like cutting and gluing, because I could, I could do that. <laughs> Art is not how I connect with God. Um, my primary spiritual practice is prayer journaling. Mm. Um, honestly, I'm not 100% sure how that ties into um being a one, except that it allows me a lot of reflection. So one of my favorite things about prayer journaling, which I've been doing for probably 10 or 12 years now, and I have all the journals I've ever written in um, back and I can look at those situations um, and I see God's grace to me through all sorts of situations. Um, And ultimately I think how, I think what, what I'm realizing kind of as I'm talking is I think about the passage in the new Testament where Jesus is talking about, um, who is more grateful for the amount of sins that they've committed. And they talk about, well, the guy who, you know, committed the most sins, like he has this, this, you know, extreme, he understands so much more 
um, how gracious God is. And so because I have this high standard for myself and I'm just constantly failing to meet it, um, I implicitly understand just automatically like our sin nature and the fact that like I will never be good enough for God because I know like I keep not meeting my own standards. And so it also helps me to just feel his grace for me so much more because um, because it's so hard for me to have grace for myself. And so realizing that he has it for me, I'm just like, oh, like so much more grateful, I think, than I would be otherwise because I know that that grace didn't come cheap and that like I need it so badly. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, a hundred percent. And as you're talking, you were like, you know, I don't really see the connection. And I'm sitting there like, oh, of course, because you, when you write it down like that and you are able to reflect on it, you see the grace that God gives you that you can't recognize for yourself in the moment. Yeah. So it's really cool that you do get to reflect on that and look and look back on that. And I love that you've kept all those journals. Like that's incredible. I, (laughs) I always try to get into journaling. And so I'll get like a quarter of the way through, halfway through a journal, and then I'll lose it. And I'll have to yeah. see another one. It's, it's a struggle. I think I have like four journals circling throughout my office and my living room and my bedroom and all these different places right now because I can't keep track of them. But I've become a little bit obsessed with it in the, in the sense that like, I don't like if we're traveling or going somewhere, like I have to bring it with me because what if I want to journal? Like, what if I want to put a thought down? And when the first summer Chris and I were married, I went on, no, second summer we were married, we went on a river trip, like adventure river trip with the youth group. And I brought, this was so dumb. I brought my prayer journal and it was a prayer journal that I had, like, it had like our reflections from our engagement and like first year of marriage in it and everything. And it got wet. And I was like, what? Like, but I like couldn't, like the thought of not bringing it with me was like, I couldn't. I should have just brought like an extra one. Um, but as I say too, like I didn't realize how influenced I was by this, but my grandmother um, really, really influenced me in prayer journaling because she has been prayer journaling for, I mean, probably 50, 60 years and she's kept all of them. And she had literally like a, cl- like a whole closet full of journals and she goes back and she reads them. Um, she'll text me and she'll be like, you know, Hey, 10 years ago, I was praying for this for you. And like, you know, and I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. So that's my goal. I mean, that's not my explicit goal, but like, that would be awesome if one day I just have like this closet full of journals. Um, so we'll see. That would be amazing. Yeah. All right. So is there anything else that you want to say to the audience just about ones in general or about your personal experience? <laughs> I had this reflection when I was pregnant with uh, Deacon, who is my baby boy. And um, I remember like driving through the Target parking lot and we've been talking about Enneagram and I was like, oh my gosh, like it would be so fun if Deacon was a one because he would be so good at school and like so successful and obviously like academics are really important to me and like, you know, anything he tries, like he'll be good at and I can just like encourage him. And then the, my instant next thought was like, oh my gosh, I hope he's not a one because sometimes it feels so hard and like I'm so hard on myself and I don't want that for Deacon. Realizing that I didn't want the unhealthy part of being a one that I put on myself, I didn't want my son to have that experience, helped me to realize like, okay, if I don't want that for him, then I don't want that for myself. Um, and so I think all the, the good tendencies of, of being a one are so awesome and the drive and the motivation and the service are amazing. Um, and so if you identify as a one, like um, it's okay to be in the negative and in the, the unhealthy, but just know that you don't have to live there. Um, you like God's graciousness can pull you out of, you know, any sort of self-criticism and and frustration that you find yourself, um, you know, constantly listening to. Um, Also just one thing that um, I think Risa 
told us this from 1128. She, the, I don't think this was her original idea. I think she got it from Suzanne Stabile or whatever, but they talk about, um, you know, ones have that voice in their head that's just like constantly like telling you, you know, better do, you know, do whatever. Um, so naming that voice is a really helpful strategy, like literally giving it a name and responding to it. And so I started doing that this year and it made such a big difference. So my name is um, Ingrid DeForest. Um, Parks and Rec, do you watch Parks and Rec? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I love Kristen Bell, like I do, but the character Kristen Bell plays, um, she's the representative from Eagleton, yeah. like like that's what I imagine my voice in my head of like this like perfect looking, you know, has everything together and, and you know, Leslie Knope talks about like, oh, she won like this beauty pageant while she was pregnant. Also, she did all these other things, like <laughs> the voice that I hear in my head of like somebody who's like so good at everything, like has this outward veneer of experience or, you know, you, you outward veneer of just perfection, like telling me like, you you could be like me, like you can be perfect. It's not true. So all that to say, um, naming your voice really helps you to talk back to it and say, you know what, it's okay. Like this is going to be good enough. And I don't have to be Ingrid DeForest and like, you know, look perfect and do everything perfect and have everything together all the time. So. Yeah, that's, I love that idea. I want to do that in my life. My friend Hannah has been telling me about lately she calls them ant phrases. And so like any time that like your brain is telling you, you know, just very obvious lies, like when it is Satan just talking to you, like you're not pretty enough or you're not successful enough or you're never good enough for that person. There are these little ant phrases. And so you have to like picture yourself squishing these ants in your head and just shutting them up and getting it out of there and I'm like I love that because I am such a visual person like squash that ant ant. I could do that but I like the naming it thing I think I would be nervous that I would like name it someone I don't like and it (laughs) yes that's why I chose a tv character because I was based this on anybody in person but yeah yeah so you know I don't want anybody listening to this to think like oh like being one is terrible because I feel like I've talked a lot about the the negative sides but I think if you are a one you have to be aware of you know the places you can go in order to avoid going there um, yeah and the healthy yeah and that's one thing that we've talked about every week is that you know I think a lot of us do in general focus on the negative just because that's human nature but you know, there are good things and bad things about every number. And it just kind of, ins- it, it, it's where you end up in the healthy versus unhealthy state. And it changes every day. It really is like a journey yeah. that you have to go through daily and you have to recognize, you know, those unhealthy traits and try to fix them and, and trying to get along with the other people and trying to recognize, you know, that nobody thinks the exact same way that we think, even, mm-hmm. you know, a, a one is not going to think the exact same way that you think. Like they're going to struggle yeah. with perfection, but they might struggle with it in a completely different way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I just, I really appreciate all the things that you said, not only about, you know, you did say a lot of good qualities. And I think that with um, the way that you're so for social justice, I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about that. So like, you know, in this time with the things that we've been, dealing with and struggling with um, for years, but especially that broke out a lot more with George Floyd. What do you say to not only that the, that situation in the Black community, but just the community of marginalized people in general, for people who don't have that same drive as you, for people that don't 
they want to help, but they don't necessarily know how to take the first step because they haven't had this calling since they were 14. Mm. What advice like would you give them as far as like, where can they start? Because I think as Christians, this is something that it's not that, yeah, we should probably do that. It's like, this is necessary. Like we are called to seek justice for the marginalized. Um, I think, you know, forgiveness ties into that. And so I think right now, one thing that I struggle with, with all of this is that we have such an emphasis of justice on one side and we have such an emphasis on forgiveness on the other because, you know, there's like white guilt or white shame. And then over here, it's like, well, we need, we need to have justice and we need to be equal. Um, but it's finding the balance of those two, Um, you know, not just being one way or the other, but having seeking justice, but also having forgiveness at the same time. How would you say to start those conversations or, or how would you, what advice would you give people to take the first step on seeking justice? Yeah, um, that's a really good question and hard to answer in just, you know, a few minutes, but I was thinking about um, an experience I had recently. And so I'm not going to name this person or anything. I don't think they would hear the podcast, but somebody in my life, um, an older gentleman who I love dearly and care about very much. Um, And sometimes being around this person was really stressful for a while because we did not see this situation the same at all. Um, And the last time it came up, this gentleman was like, you know, so I've been doing some research and he wasn't talking to me specifically. He was talking to the group of people we were with, but um, he was like, I've been doing some research. And he was like, it turns out, um, you know, there have been a lot of disadvantages that black people have had to experience. And I'm in the corner like, what? Like you've done research and you just now learned that? Like, what do you, how did you not know that? And he was like, yeah, like, you know, there's some problems in the system and some issues here. And my mind was so blown by like, how did you not know? Like, what, like, you just found out and it's 2020 and, and you you just learned this recently people have been saying this for so long and like you know feels like there's no reason for you not to know um so i was asking him like hey like when you were in school which you know granted was you know um in a different state no a long time ago did you guys not talk about this stuff like did you not talk about systemic racism and slavery and and jim crow and things like that and he was like not really and so um that was an important moment for me to realize that not everybody has the same knowledge or has done the the reading or the research or just, you know, has had the same conversations with people that I've had. Yeah. And so one, I think it's, it's education. And I so appreciated that this gentleman was taking the time to go and educate himself. Um, I had to put aside my own like incredulity that he had to do that. And, and just realize like, there's a lot of people who really just don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one thing is like, if you don't know, that's okay, but go ahead and try to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, find some ways to learn, whether that's through conversation or research, please, please, please use valid resources. Don't use Facebook at all. Like, Do some like legit research for yourself um, because it's there and you'll find it real fast. So that's the one thing is if you don't know, go find out. Um, and I think too, um, what a lot of people really struggle with is humanizing the opposing viewpoint. So whether or not you're on the side of forgiveness or justice or you're struggling with that, Um, what we tend to do as humans is categorize people instead of putting human faces to them. So really, ultimately, that looks like relationship. Like we, if we're going to be advocates for social justice, then we need to be in relationship with marginalized people. That can be really hard to do, especially during COVID when we're not supposed to be around people a lot. um, And that looks different for every person. Um, For me, that was working in a Title I school um, with an entirely Black class of kids who, you know, just have all the challenges that come with being 
um, in an impoverished part of the city and, and being victims of racism, you know, every day of their lives. So that was the relationship that was super important for me to understand. You know, I can never really understand what it's like to be them, but to um, see a little bit more of what their world looks like. Um, but relationship, I think, is the most important first step there. Um, it's really, really hard to hate somebody who you know personally um, because you realize that they're a human. And so um, those are the two things I think I would tell people to start with is education and relationship. They're also two super hard things. It would be way easier to just like wave a sign or do a fundraiser, um, but neither of those things involve looking into the eyes of another person who is created by God and recognizing that their life has been really different from yours. And that's something that we want to um, recognize and fix in a lot of situations. Wow, that that's a question. Yes, no, that was so well said. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And Sarah, thank you for this whole conversation that we've had tonight um, to talk about what your experience has been like being a one, being the perfectionist, and some of the things that you've had to struggle through and continue to struggle with, like your, the drive, the need for control, um, but then also things that about yourself that are just awesome and reasons that you, you know, seek justice and, and want to help others around you. And so I'm just really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you and your willingness to serve and thankful for this conversation we had tonight. Um, we're going to transition now into our time where I'm going to play the song from uh, Sleeping at Last. This is going to be Sleeping at Last depiction of what a one would be like through song. So I'm going to go ahead and play that right now. Find out grace requires 
nothing of me. I, I want to sing a song worth singing. Writing in some words repeating. I just love listening to those songs every week. Um, again, thank you, Sarah, for being on this podcast with us tonight. Um, I got so much joy from being able to talk to you um, since we haven't done that in a while. We do still have copies of The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile up at the church if you want to purchase one of those for $10. Um, next week, I'm going to have uh, maybe one or two or even three people <laughs> special guesting on the podcast, but I'm excited about that. I know a lot of twos in my life. We're going to be talking about twos and I love twos and that's my wing. So I'm really excited to talk to y'all about that. So join us next week on Today on the Gram. Oh, no.